night. Good morning, everybody. Uh, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18 is where we're going to be. And um, as you turn there, um, just want to give you a couple of reminders. Um, one is that tonight we are having a trunk or treat up here at the building. And uh, so children, if you want some candy, um, guilt your parents into coming tonight. I'm kidding. Uh, we just want you to know we're having it. We'd love for you to join us as a church family. Uh, we're going to do our monthly church family dinner tonight and have hot dogs and chili and all the fall things. Um, and then we're going to do a trunk or treat out back. So um, I just want to let you know that if it's raining, uh, still show up. We're going to have it indoors if it's raining. This will happen rain or shine. We want to have a fun night for the children. And if we have to, we'll just spread out all the adults around the building and let kids trick-or-treat throughout the building and have a good time. But it's sunny out there right now. should be fine. We'd love for you to join us. That's 5 to 7. Uh, we'll have chili and hot dogs and all the fun. And um, if you're coming, we would encourage you to bring some candy to give out to the children. And uh, if you're participating, meaning bringing candy and uh, wanting to pass that stuff out, if you'll park in the back, uh, we'll have some people out there to help direct you. Um, and we'll make sure all that's taken care of. But if you're not, if you want to come and just eat and hang out and don't want to do the whole give out candy thing, just park in the front and uh, you are just as welcome. But uh, we uh, want to invite you to that five to seven tonight. And um, I think that's the only thing I'm talking about this morning. Um, as we dive into this, um, I've asked one of my uh, besties to read this morning. Uh, little Miss Garner Hardwick is going to come and read our passage for the morning. Um, so Garner, come on up here. And uh, she's got her Bible here. Um, church family, while she's getting ready, if you'll stand, uh, we're going to read God's Word together. And she's going to lead us. And I'm going to give mom, uh, you want me to hold the microphone? You got it? Okay. You ready, girl? Oh, I need to tell what we're reading. Hold on. We're going to read uh, verses 9 through 14. That would be helpful, wouldn't it? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable to men who went up to the temple to pray, one Pharisee and the other a tax collector stuck. Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give it a tenth out, all I can get. But this tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, sent I sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen. Great job, girl. Awesome job. Awesome job. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much. Um, God, just hearing your word read aloud. Um, God, thank you that um, the children in this room, God, are hearing your word read and preached. And uh, Father, they hear that weekly um, here, and uh, we're grateful for that. Um, Father, I 
am so thankful. Um, God, just as Garner read, that your word um, is inspired. You wrote it. Your Holy Spirit inspired the men who wrote it, and it is exactly what you wanted it to say. Um, God, it is eternally true. It is without error, and it doesn't need me to add anything to it. Um, God, the goal this morning is just to see you in this passage and uh, to to read the text as it's written and uh, help discover the meaning that you intended. Um, so God, help us to do that. Make yourself great uh, during this time and uh, be with us as we uh, learn from your word. God, your sheep know the sound of your voice. So lead us once again by um, the sound of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Thanks again, Garner. I appreciate that. Um, for those of you that are children and you've got one of the sermon question notes things, um, if you need a title, um, I don't usually title my messages, but since you're in here, we're going to give it a title. Um, the title is Two Sinners and One Saint. Two Sinners and One Saint, as we're going to see in this passage. Um, I thought about calling it Good Guys, Bad Guys, and Us Guys, but uh, we're just going to go with Two Sinners and One Saint. Um, we're going to look at this passage together, and uh, to give you some context as we dive into this, um, you need to know kind of what's happening around Luke 18, what's happened right before this. Um, where's Jesus headed? Where is he when he's saying all of these things? Um, because that'll help us as we look at the meaning of this passage. And uh, if you were here last week, you remember that we were in Luke 16. In Luke 16, we looked at a parable. We're walking through different parables that Jesus taught and spoke um, during his earthly ministry. And we looked at a very intense parable. We talked about heaven and hell and the intermediate state and the eternal state and all of those things. So if you missed it, um, it's a pretty significant um, parable. I'm not going to call it a significant sermon. Uh, I'll leave that up to you to decide, but it was a pretty significant text that we looked at. Um, so I would encourage you to go back and listen on the podcast because we learned a lot about um, where those that we love are now, what happens when we die, all of those kind of things. Um, it's not an exhaustive parable that tells us everything we need to know about the afterlife and heaven and hell and those kind of things, but man, does it give us a lot that we can learn from and worship God for and those kind of things. So I would encourage you um, to listen to that, but I bring that up because we were in Luke 16 and now we're in Luke 18. So what has happened between Luke 16 and Luke 18? Well, um, Jesus has essentially set his eyes toward Jerusalem. Uh, midway through the book of Luke and midway through the book of Mark, um, both writers tell us that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, meaning that Jesus knew that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he would never leave Jerusalem, that he has set his face towards the last time he's going to ride into Jerusalem as a conquering king. Uh, we're in Luke 18. Luke only has 24 chapters in its book. Um, so Jesus is headed towards um, his execution, essentially. He is headed towards the moment where he is going to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus told this parable as he was teaching his disciples about um, the eternal state, the intermediate state, all of those kind of things. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. And as he's doing that, if you move into chapter 17, he's teaching his disciples. And um, in chapter 17, it's a very cool story, but these 10 lepers, these 10 people with leprosy come up to Jesus and they ask him for healing, and Jesus says, go and show yourselves to the priest, which is interesting because you wouldn't show yourself to the priest um, until you were healed. So Jesus is essentially telling these people to believe in who he is, to trust him for who he is, to trust that he has the power to heal them, and go and walk by faith. And these 10 men go and start headed towards the priest, and they instantly get healed. And one of them turns around doesn't go to the priest, comes right back to Jesus and worships him and praises him and thanks him. And Jesus is going, wait, weren't there 10 of you? Where are the other nine guys? 
And essentially what we're seeing is exactly what Jesus taught us last week, is that people will see signs, people will see wonders, but that will not save them. They don't need another sign. The, the rich man was crying out in the parable last week, hey, if you can just go give my family a sign, then they'll believe. And what does Jesus say? They won't believe, right? They won't even believe if someone rises from the dead. And we saw that to be true in the Bible. Jesus literally raised a man from, named Lazarus from the dead. And from that point on, people plotted to kill him. It didn't soften their hearts. It just hardened their hearts even more. And Jesus himself rose from the dead. And did that cause their hearts to be softened and to trust in him? No, it didn't. They just kept trying to squash this movement. So Jesus is saying, and we're seeing it in real time, that these nine people see a sign from this man that they meet on the outskirts between Samaria and Galilee. They meet this man and his 12 buddies, and he instantly heals them. And one of them says, truly, this must be the Son of God, right? Comes back and worships him. The other nine are like, thanks, I got my life back. Just still as concerned with only themselves, and they go on about their lives. And Jesus is saying, hey, look, it's not the signs that they need. They have all the signs that they could ever need. They have the prophets, they have the Old Testament law, they have the word of God, and now they have the Messiah in the flesh, and they still don't see it. And chapter 17 ends with Jesus telling his disciples that the kingdom is going to come in an instant. It's not going to be one of those like, oh, here it comes, we can see it coming, let's get ready. No, it's going to be like a thief in the night. He says it's going to be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot where all of a sudden people are just working out in Genesis 6 and a flood shows up and they had no idea it was coming. He even says there's going to be two people laying in bed and in a moment one of them's going to be gone and one of them's going to be left there. It's going to be that fast. And chapter 18 opens with Jesus telling a parable about an unrighteous judge. And it seems like it doesn't connect with what we're going to talk about this morning, but I promise you it does. And Jesus tells this parable um, about this unrighteous judge who doesn't fear God, he doesn't fear man. Like I said, he's unrighteous, he doesn't care about the things of the Lord, and this persistent widow keeps asking him for things, um, for justice is what the scripture says. She keeps nagging him and asking him, and he finally grants her request as the judge. And the point of the parable is Jesus saying, this unrighteous judge was willing to give this persistent person what they wanted because of their persistence. And he's saying, how much more will a righteous judge and a good judge, your heavenly father, how much more does he long to come to your aid and to your need? So keep praying, keep seeking, keep knocking, all of those kind of things. And then he moves into our parable for this morning. And it's a very simple parable. And what I mean by that is um, it's very clear, like it doesn't need me to pull out a lot of Greek terms. It doesn't mean me need to like pull out a lot of hidden truths. Um, it is very clear and straightforward. It doesn't need a lot of um, careful interpretation. What it really needs is just very careful observation for all of us. Because what we're gonna see this morning is there is a lot more Pharisee in me. There's a lot more Pharisee in all of us than we ever want to admit. There is so much more Pharisee in us than we would ever want to admit. So let's look at it together. If you look at verse nine, as Garner read, it says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now notice that on this occasion, Luke doesn't tell us specifically who the audience is. He just tells us things about them, right? He doesn't say specifically who these people were, if they were Jews, if they were Gentiles. He just says it was some people who trusted in themselves. And the question has to be asked, okay, how in the world does Luke know their motives? Well, this is where we fall in the, the doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture. 
2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. It is written by God. It is spoken by God. Um, 1 Peter says that these writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when when an author of scripture says that this person's motive was this, um, it's because the Holy Spirit inspired them to say that and to write that, and we know it to be true, right? I can't know your motives. I can't guess your motives, all of those kind of things. Um, But God knows the motive of every heart, and God inspired Luke to write this. And wrote down, Luke wrote exactly what God wanted him to write, so we can take it to the bank um, that these people actually did trust in themselves that they were righteous. And notice what happens. Because they trust in themselves, and I love this, um, just setting the scene, Luke doesn't pull any punches. There's so much we can learn from just this one verse. They trust in themselves, they think that they're righteous. They're betting on when they face God one day, their own good works when they stand before him. That I've done this, I've done that, I've attended church, I put money in the plate, I've done all the things. They are standing in and trusting in and banking on. Their confidence is in their own performance. That's where their trust lies. Hey, here's what I've done and here's why I'm righteous and here's why I deserve eternal life. And notice this, they have a very high view of themselves, which means, and we're gonna see this all throughout the parable, we can learn a lot about that. When anytime we have a high view of ourselves, it means we have a very low view of God and God's standard and God's word, right? We would think that this person has a high view of God's rules and God's law because he's keeping it, right? But it actually exposes the fact that he has a low view of it because he thinks he can actually attain it. God's standard of perfection, to love him with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our mind and all of our strength Hear me, church, you and I cannot do that for one second on this earth. Not for a second have I ever loved God with 100% of my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. I fall short of his glory and of his standard every day. Even on my best moments, all of my righteous deeds are still tainted with a little bit of sin, with a desire for glory, a desire for approval, a desire for you to see it, right? Some pride in what I just accomplished and what I just did. But even on my best day, I cannot meet God's standard. And this person thinks he has, which shows that he doesn't have a high view of God's law. He actually has a very low view because he thinks he's able to keep it daily and be good enough where God would see him and accept him. But notice this. What else does he say? He says he trusted in himself or they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Now, one of the things we can do is read that and think these are two separate ideas. But I'm arguing this morning, and I think we can see from the text that those two things are very, very connected. That their view of themselves and their treatment of others is directly related. And I would argue for us that your view of yourself and your treatment of others is very connected. My view of myself and my treatment of you is perfectly connected. That when I have a high view of myself, it results in a low view of others, which results in a low treatment of others. That every time I treat you or someone else with contempt, that word just means to despise or look down on or to disdain or disrespect, it's because I have an inflated view of myself. Every time I'm rude to somebody else, every time I'm short with somebody else, Every time I'm impatient with somebody else, it's because I have an inflated view of me. Those two things are perfectly connected. That the way we treat others is a good barometer or a good measuring stick of how we are viewing ourselves in the moment. If you think about it, 
when that person is driving really slow in front of you, right, in the left lane, and you start to, you know, think of some four-letter words, and you start to, you know, quench the steering wheel and all of those things, what's happening in that moment? Your view of yourself and your time and your schedule is way more important than theirs, and I just need this person to move out of my way so that I can live out my schedule, my time, what I'm doing. Does that make sense? When I'm getting mad at the cashier at the grocery store because they're not moving fast enough, what am I doing? It's, it's showing itself in a low treatment of others, but it's, it's starting from and coming from a place of I think my schedule and my time and my agenda is more important than theirs. When I'm short or rude or disrespectful to my wife, when I've had a long day and I get home and she's trying to connect, which she's longing to connect with her husband and I'm trying to disengage, it's because I think what I need in the moment is more important than what she needs in that moment. Our treatment of others is directly related, is perfectly related to how we are currently viewing ourselves in that moment. That a high view of ourselves will result in a low view and low treatment of others. And we see this. These people are trusting in themselves. They have a high view of themselves, a low view of God's law, and a low view of others because this tax collector just can't get it together. Look at me. I've got it all together, and this guy can't seem to do it. So thank the Lord I'm not like him, right? He has a high view of himself and a low view of others. So question just to start us off, like I said, this is just verse one. What do you think about yourself? How have you thought about yourself lately? Well, a good barometer is just think about how you've treated others lately. Are you more important, right? Are you demanding? Is your schedule more important? Is your job more important? Are your needs more important? Have you had a high view of yourself and a low view of others? The higher you think of yourself, the lower you will treat others. And that's just the first verse. So let's keep going. Uh, verse 10, Luke has set the scene. These people, this, the story, this parable is directed to those who are trusting in themselves. Their confidence is in their, themselves. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now we can learn a lot from these two characters and the first one is a Pharisee. Now I wanna kind of give us a disclaimer to take off kind of our um, Christian goggles for a minute and put ourselves in the first century. And what I mean by that is a lot of us uh, we're well acquainted with Pharisees because we read our Bible, and that's a good thing, right? We, we know how it ends for the Pharisees. We know that they're essentially like Jesus' arch enemies, that they are always conflicting with Jesus. He's always having these run-ins with him. It's not the sinners and the outcasts that have a problem with Jesus. It's the religious because they think that they're keeping up this system, and Jesus did not come to call the righteous or the self-righteous. He came to call the sinners. He came to love those who knew they needed a Savior. They didn't think they needed a Savior, but... And what I mean by, let's take those goggles off for a second, because in the first century, um, Pharisees were highly regarded and they were highly beloved. That when Luke introduces these characters, we would see that one is really loved and one is really hated, and the one that was loved was actually the Pharisee. In Jesus' day, when they heard that name Pharisee, they would have been like, all right, we've got a good guy in the story. This is going to work out. This is going to be great. Pharisees were beloved, they were highly regarded, they had great public perception, they were faithful to their wives, they were responsible with money, they were good, upstanding, right citizens. They knew the law and they obeyed it. Now, they took it to the extreme, which is where Jesus had an issue, 
Um, they thought they were able to obey it perfectly. They started adding to it to try to keep people in line and keep some order and oppress people and those kind of things. Um, but they weren't just, by and large, acting evil towards people. They were the people that would run for public office in the community if they had those. They were the people that would have been elders at the churches in Israel. And I'm not calling our elders Pharisees or anything like that. I'm just saying these are the people that would have been up for the vote. They were highly regarded. They had good reputations. And Jesus introduces these two people, and one of them is beloved, and one of them is hated, and the one that's hated is the tax collector. Because tax collectors in Israel were those that sold themselves out to their own kin, their own brethren, their own fellow Jews. And what they would do was Rome had control over Israel in the first century. Um, Rome was the world power. Rome dominated the world. And Israel was under Roman control. And these Israelites, these tax collectors, would go and, hey, I'm, I'm not going to be a part of this community. I'm not going to work in this community. I'm going to go and work for Rome. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to come to your house, and I'm going to take your money. I'm going to collect taxes for Rome. And Rome has given me full control and full ability with Roman soldiers and spears to come in and ask for whatever I want. And as long as Rome gets what they need, I can ask for whatever I want on top of that, and I get to keep that money. So they were seen as backstabbers, as traitors. They were hated. In fact, you see throughout the scriptures um, that often when you read, it says the tax collectors and the sinners. It's like they had their own separate category of sinners, right? In Matthew 18, when Jesus talks about going through um, church discipline, that when you have a sin against your brother, go and tell him his fault. And then if he doesn't listen, get some others. And if he doesn't listen, get the church involved. And then what does he say? If they still don't repent, he says, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, right? According to kind of the world's definition, treat them like a pagan unbeliever, treat them like an outcast. So you've got the beloved person, the Pharisee, you've got the hated person, the tax collector, and they're both in this story. To, to, to make it really clear, um, dad's in the room, if you have a daughter and two men came to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage and it was a tax collector and a Pharisee, you would be lining up to give your daughter away to the Pharisee. They were beloved, they were highly regarded, they were respected um, with their outward behavior. But as Jesus often corrected them and challenged them, they honored him with their lips and their hands, but their hearts were always far from him. They had a high view of themselves, a low view of God's standard. They honored God with their behavior in their hands, but their hearts were far from him. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, right? They looked really good on the outside, but they were dead on the inside. On the inside, they had no view of God for who he was. They did not see Jesus for who he was. They, they thought they were good on their own. They did not realize their need for a savior, but they were beloved. So, Look at verse 11. You've got these two characters. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. They are headed to the temple to pray. And what do we see? We see the content of their prayers. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, we can learn a lot from this sentence, this verse, this person's posture and his prayer, but notice his posture for a second. First, um, he's standing probably with his chin up towards heaven, his chest out, saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, right? What a first line to a prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. What a line. That's crazy, right? 
And a lot of us will go, man, okay, I think I'm, 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 I'm pretty well off, right? I would never pray something like that. I'm good, right? The problem is we all might not say those actual words, but the way we treat people would say that we're glad that we're not like other people. We have a high view of ourselves, and we also actually probably think some of these thoughts, right? We might not say it that way, but some of us, if we're honest, we've thought things like, I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but have you seen those folks, right? I mean, I make mistakes, but I've never done what he did, right, or what she did. We have this high view of ourselves. I mean, I know our family is crazy, but like, did you see the way their kids were doing this, this, and that, right? Anybody else got the sights on them like I do this morning, right? We so often have a high view of ourselves. You know, whew, I'm glad I'm not going through what they're going through, or I'm glad I'm not like, glad I don't have those issues, right? The truth is that if, even though you and I might not say those words out loud, um, our actions towards others reveal that often we have a very high view of ourselves. And then he, he goes on to his, his performance, right? I fast to- twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now he starts to give his accolades, right? God, I'm thankful that I'm not like them. They're sinners. They're bad. I'm glad I'm not this tax collector. And here's what I do. I fast. I give tithes to all I get, right? Um, in first century Israel, all of Israel was commanded to fast uh, once a year. Um, at the Day of Atonement. Now, this guy is fasting twice a week, so it is pretty impressive, right? That is pretty crazy. Um, Pharisees did fast a little more than that, but not twice a week. And then tithing of everything you had, right? In that day, many were trying to get around the tithe. We're trying to find ways um, to escape it. And here's the, here's the issue. The problem wasn't what the man was doing. The problem was why he was doing it and the heart in which he was doing it. He was doing these things thinking that it was enough, thinking that he was righteous, thinking that he was good. He was keeping up the religious game. And if last week, if we talked about, you know, heaven, hell, those things, and um, sinners, believers, all of those things, if last week is being lost in your badness, this week by far is being lost in your goodness. Is what's just as deadly as rebellion is religion. Both end up in the same place. That if you and I are thinking that God is going to show us his grace and his mercy and give us eternal life based on our own human goodness, I'm a good person, I put money in the plate, I do all those things, then we have missed it. It actually reveals we have a very low view of God and his standard and his grace. If I don't need it, if I just need God to give me a hand every now and then, right? What is your view of the gospel? Are you a pretty good person who just needs God to give you a hand? Are you a dead person in your sin who God needs to make alive? We'll see both of these in this passage. But the man is giving his accolades, and notice this, like his prayer is two sentences long, and he says, God wants, and he says, I, four times. Two sentences. He says, God, one time, and he says, I, four different times. High view of himself, low view of God, low view of his grace. And notice what he says he's thankful for. He doesn't say, God, I'm thankful that you gave me this, this, and this. He says, I'm thankful that I'm not like other people, right? Not even thankful for what the Lord has done in his life that's allowed him to escape some of these issues and sins and addictions and those kind of things. It's not, God, I'm thankful for what you've given me. It's, God, I'm thankful that I'm not like others. 
Verse 13, here's the comparison. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now compare the two postures. One standing up, right? Probably chin up, chest up. This tax collector, this person who knows he's a sinner, who knows he needs a savior, who knows he needs grace, is humble, he's broken, he's standing far off, he does not approach the Lord arrogantly or standing in his own works. He's trembling. He won't even look up to heaven. He won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. I'm not even worthy to look in that direction. And then he starts beating his breast. That was a sign. We don't do that most often here, but that was a sign of someone saying that I'm undeserving. In fact, I deserve punishment. I'm, it was a sign of shame, right? I deserve to be punished for what I've done. And notice the simple, beautiful, seven-word prayer. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, don't speed past this prayer. Don't speed past it. We all need to ask, how often do my prayers carry that kind of posture and that kind of heart and that kind of tone, right? How often do my prayers start with, God, I need this, and I need you to do this, and can you take care of this, and here's my agenda, here's my, here's my needs, here's my wants, here's my desires, or how often do my prayers start with, God, I need your mercy yet again. God, I continue to fall short of your standard and I'm grateful that you love me anyways. God, give me the mercy to follow you today. Give me the grace to obey you today, right? Where is our heart when we come to the Lord? Is it standing in our own works and standing in our own righteousness and giving the Lord our own agenda? Or is it, God, I just need your mercy again. God, I'm grateful that every time I run to you, Every morning, Scripture says that your mercies are new every single morning, that you give grace to the humble, that you draw near to the brokenhearted. You save those who are crushed in spirit. God, I need your mercy yet again. God, my default setting as I wake up today is to seek mine, is to live for my name, is to live for my glory. God, give me your mercy to see that you've put me here on purpose and you've got work for me to do today, right? What is the tone, what is the attitude of our prayers but notice this man. God, I just need your mercy. That's all I need. And what does Jesus say? He says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now that word justified means that he is declared righteous. It's a term that means a judge would look at you and say, you are righteous. You're good. You're, you're not just innocent, but you're and according to God's standards, you're perfect, right? You're holy, you're good, you're righteous. It's not just that you haven't done anything wrong, it's that, it's that you are now good. That's what it means to be justified. It means a, a, a judge declaring you righteous. And here's the issue. The Pharisee was trying to declare himself righteous with his own religion. God, here I go again. Look at what I've done for you. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, right? I'm giving, I'm tithing, I'm you know, giving my one hour a week to the church, all those kind of things. Look at me, aren't you impressed with me? Trying to justify himself. God hears my record. God hears my resume of all the good things that I've done. Church, when we face the Lord one day, if the first word that comes out of our mouths is I've done this and I've done that, then we are in for some bad news. But if the first word that comes out of our mouth is because he did this for me and because he 
live the life I could not live. And he died the death that I deserve. He went to the cross that I should have gone to. He's the one who's won the righteousness. He's the one who's earned it. I'm the one who doesn't deserve it. This is the attitude of those who are truly justified. The tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. Why? Because he knew he could never earn it. Tim Keller often says, the only way to be worthy of the gospel is to realize that you're completely unworthy of it. In his book, uh, Mere Christianity, and I'll use terms um, differently just because there's children in the room, um, C.S. Lewis says um, that the promiscuous woman in tears on the back row is closer to heaven than the prude on the front row who's wondering why she's in the building. Those that know that they need a savior, those who know that they're sinners, those who know that they can't measure up, those who know that they're broken, that's the first step to receiving the grace of God. The only way to be worthy of the gospel is to realize and to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. This tax collector knew that he was talking to the God of the universe and knew that he could not hide. He could not stand on his own works. He knew they weren't good enough. He had a high view of God's holiness and his righteousness and his standard, meaning that he had an accurate view of himself. And he knew his only hope was that this holy God would be merciful to him. In church, that's the goodness of our God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. He will not let sin go unpunished, but he is also merciful to those who fall on their knees and admit that they need his grace and his mercy his forgiveness. And J.C. Ryle says that the true cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. That if you want a cure for your self-righteousness, just think really hard about your behavior. Think really hard about your thoughts and your desires when no one's around, right? If you want a cure for your pride problem, just get to know yourself a little more, right? Think about your sins. Think about your thoughts. Think about your issues. Think about your selfishness. Think about all of those things, right? The cure for self-righteousness is true self-knowledge, and that's exactly what the tax collector had. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he was caught. He knew his only hope was a Savior doing something for him that he couldn't do for himself. And that was how he received mercy. He admitted that he needed it. He wasn't standing on his own work saying, look at me, aren't you glad for what I've done? He wasn't trusting in his own righteousness. He was falling on his knees for mercy. It's the old hymn, right? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. This was the attitude of the tax collector. And here's the big issue of the passage is that righteousness cannot be earned. It has to be given. Kids in the room, you need to hear this. You can never do enough good works for God to declare you righteous. You just can't. And that is a terrible roller coaster to be on. That is a terrible burden to try to fulfill, trying to be good enough for God to love you. And here's the good news, kids. You cannot be good enough for God to love you. And God sent Jesus to be good enough in your place. So now that when you put your faith in Jesus and you're united to Jesus, God looks at you with the righteousness that Jesus has won in his life. Righteousness has only been earned once, but it's not by us. It's by God coming down to earth and taking on human flesh and meeting his own standard for us and then going to the cross willingly for all the ways that you and I fail to meet his standard on a daily basis.
basis. So we do good works. We want to please God and all those things. Why? Not so that God will love us, but because he does. Because he already does in Jesus. And if a God would find a wretch like me and would love me and live for me and then die for me, then I want to please him and I want to follow a God like that. Not so that he'll love me, but because he already has proven that he loves me. Does that make sense? It's vastly different than trying to win God's approval with my religion. And then Jesus says this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is essentially what we all have to realize this morning is that the only way to truly receive the gospel and be exalted, be united with Christ, be adopted into the family of God is to first be humbled, to be humbled by God's holiness and his standard and be humbled by your sin. And those who are truly humbled and recognize their need for a savior, Jesus says, that's exactly who I came for. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens with blessed are the poor in spirit. What does he mean by that? Blessed are those who know that spiritually they are bankrupt before God that they can't do anything to earn his love. Those are the ones who are blessed. Those are the ones who are saved. Those are the ones who find mercy. Not the ones trying to earn mercy with religion, but those who admit that they need it. Those are the ones who are blessed. Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call those who knew they were sick. I didn't come to call the healthy. I came to call the sick. That's exactly who he came for. The first step to receiving righteousness is recognizing that you don't deserve it. So here's the point as we wrap up this morning. Here's the point. You do not need a couple tips to act better this morning. If you've been around High Point, we don't preach this way. We don't teach this way. We don't leave here with three tips to be a better Christian this week. You don't need five tips to, be, to treat people better this week. You just don't. Why? Because that's just you trying to still earn your righteousness. It's, hey, here's a couple tips and go try this and we'll all come back next week and we'll all secretly know that none of us met the standard, none of us kept all of the tips all week long and then the following week you get three more tips and by the end of the year you've got 150 tips that you're supposed to do to be a good believer and nobody can measure up to that standard. You don't need a better list of behaviors this morning. You need mercy. And when you remember just how merciful God is, it will change your behavior. When your heart's changed by the free grace and mercy of God to those who know that they need it, your behavior will change. But the last thing you need is just a couple tips to be a little better this week. Why? Because it's still trying to earn your righteousness. It's still trying to be good enough for what? Your behavior can't and doesn't determine God's love for you. This is why we say things like, we want you to read your Bible every morning. Why? Not so that God will be happy with you or God won't smite you, right? Or be upset with you. That's religion. That's you doing something for God so that he might be kind to you. No. Why do we want you to read your Bible every day? So that you can remind yourself that God's merciful to sinners of whom, as Paul would say, I am the worst. And when you receive his mercy, man, does it change the way you live. I wanna love a God like that. I wanna follow a God like that. I wanna run after a God like that. You don't need behavior modification. You need mercy, and when you remember just how merciful God is, it will change the way that you love him and serve him and serve others, not to try to justify yourself, but because you have freely been justified by his grace as a gift. The point of the passage is our only hope for all time is divine mercy, is God's mercy on us. 
Both of these men were sinners. One was lost in his rebellion as a tax collector, and the Pharisee was just as lost in his religion and could not see his need for a savior. Looked down on others with contempt, had a low view of God. Both are just as lost. Two sinners, one walked away a saint, and it wasn't any of the works that he did. It was admitting that he needed grace and mercy and a savior. Do you see the difference? I want to read this passage to you as we close. Um, I'm going to read um, in Romans 3. We're going to skip a couple and let's close with this. Um, This is Romans 3. Um, I just want you to see how Paul writes this clearly about how you and I can never be justified by our own works, by our own religion. Um, And uh, we'll move into a response time. It says this. If you'll look at the screens, this is Romans 3. Um, Paul writes ever so clearly, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. No human being will be declared righteous in God's sight. Why? Because through the law comes knowledge of sin. What does Paul mean by that? You want to know just how holy God is and just how perfect his standard is? Hyper-focus for the rest of the day on trying to obey the scriptures perfectly. Right? Hyper-focus on the law and you'll realize just how sinful you are. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was given never to save anyone. Your, Your works cannot save you. They were never meant to. The law was given. The scriptures were given. The Bible was given to show that you cannot save yourself and that you need a savior. They were meant to show, to be a mirror just to show us how sinful we are. They were meant to give us an accurate diagnosis of ourselves. And for some of us, we've always gotten the diagnosis wrong. We think that we can attain this, we can do this, and because of that, we've gotten the cure wrong. For a lot of us, the cure historically in church has been just be a little better, try a little harder, do a little gooder, right? All of those things. And because we got the diagnosis wrong, we get the cure wrong. The scripture shows us that you and I, we cannot measure up. By works of the law, no one can be justified. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that's required, has been made manifest. It's been given, it has been created apart from the law. Who is it? It's in his son. But what does he say? The law and the prophets bear witness to it. That the scriptures point towards this righteousness that we can't earn, that has to be given to us apart from the law. The law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation that just means to satisfy his wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine foreparents, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present times that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the question this morning is where is your righteousness currently coming from? Are you trying to earn it? Are you trying to receive it as a free gift of what God has done in your place? For the believer in the room, you've been saved by faith. You've been given righteousness. But now are you trying to be sanctified by your own works? Paul says in Galatians 3, he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
For those of you unbelievers, are you, are you trying to sanctify yourself by your works or are you still trusting in God's mercy to change you daily and sanctify you? You're not saved by your works and you can't be sanctified by your works. But where is your righteousness coming from? Two responses this morning. For the unbeliever, if you don't know the gospel, your action step is maybe this morning the Lord's calling you to pray that simple seven-word prayer. Be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. And there is grace available for you, regardless of where you've come from, what you've done, your past, your guilt, your shame, there is grace available to you. And for the believer in the room, let's use these two barometers this week. One, how we treat others will identify where our righteousness is coming from in that moment. What are we standing on, our own works or God's free righteousness? And two, what we pray about. What is the tone and the attitude of our prayers? It will reveal what our righteous, where our righteousness is coming from. But as we continue to follow Jesus, it's not by our works. It's always been and will always be by our faith in Christ. Amen? So what we're going to do is we're going to dismiss in a minute. We're going to have um, little Carver come up here and pray for us. And then uh, if you have questions about the message, if you have, want to put your faith in Jesus, if you want to talk to one of our pastors or elders or staff, um, we're going to be down front as people dismiss. You can just come down here if you've got a question, if you want to take a step, if you want to get involved, whatever it is. We'd just love to talk to you. Um, but uh, Carver's going to come up and pray to close us, and then you will be dismissed. So come on up here, buddy, and uh, end our service. You want to hold it? Perfect. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day and thank you for this morning. And please help our people who are sick right now. And thank you for church this morning. And thank you for Pastor Parker. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Thanks, buddy.